This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome. You found Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Elizabeth Wharton, at Lawyer Liz, coming to you live each Wednesday from 2 to 3 in the afternoon. And find us on iTunes and other podcast apps under Lawyer Liz. And while I am an attorney with the law firm of Hall Booth Smith based in Atlanta, I am not your attorney for purposes of the show. Instead, Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz is a look at the buzz surrounding the Internet of Things, drones, and all the technology in between. So welcome. And if you haven't already heard, then Samsung cell phone Note 7 owners, you're in for a world of hurt if you haven't already switched out your phone or powered it down. So today's episode and show, we're going to take a look at from exploding phones to drones and looking at the new FAA Part 107 rules. We're a couple weeks in, and it has not quite been the apocalypse that you would have expected based on some of the buildup and lead-in to that. Instead, it's been a fairly smooth uh, rollout, and so we've invited noted drone law and aviation expert, uh, Jonathan, to join the show. And then once Jonathan and I chat part 107 for a little while, we will be joined by Rich Mogul to talk Samsung and what do we do from here. And then followed by privacy and technology attorney Darren Dickerson to talk about, okay, your phone explodes. What's next from a legal class action and privacy aspect? So it's going to be an exciting from drones to exploding phones kind of buzz off with lawyer Liz today. And let's jump right in. And first of all, introduce Jonathan. But Jonathan, thank you for joining us. You're a noted author and uh, media spokesperson quite frequently on both aviation and drone law and have your own practice down in Florida. But Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate it. Well, absolutely. We can't talk part 107 without having you in the conversation. I mean, you're you're all over it. Oh, I, I, I try to cover it as much as possible, and the, the breaking news and everything that's coming out, and it seems like the FAA is coming out with more and more uh, info almost daily. So since the uh, release of Part 107, at least the, the publishing of it, uh, it didn't go into effect until August the 29th, but it was first published on June the 21st. I, I would estimate it's very close to around 1,000-something pages of now, of now material have come out. I say, it, so they're, they're trying to make sure that we get our uh, arm work out, carrying all the different 
summaries and binders. And then you recently, so congratulations on two fronts. One, you are, uh, I say you have your remote pilot certification. And you also, was it the first exemption or waiver that came out under the new rules for your client, uh, Red Raptor? Right. So how that whole Red Raptor thing went down was that was originally a 333 exemption filed from back in March. Those three, those uh, waivers that were granted around uh, August the 29th were pretty much already in the hopper for many, many, many months prior. So uh, that's kind of how that happened. It wasn't like we woke up at like 1 a.m. or something and then started typing and then they like reviewed it real quick and popped it out later that day. You know so you've it, done it. Admit it. <laughs> just not on this one. It's just, yeah, doing like the energy drinks. I'm like, hey, we got to get this out today, guys. So um, we, we, we picked that up, and it was um, it was in a group of waivers that were granted all at the same time. So I can't really say we were the first. We were in the first group, but I don't know who was first uh, because they were all there was a total of like a 76, I think, that were mm-hmm. released all at one time. So there were a bunch of nights. There were... To beyond visual, well, they weren't really beyond visual line of sight. They're more like extended line of sight. Uh, CNN picked up an operations over people one, which really wasn't a full operations over people kind of. You know, if you yeah. actually read the restrictions, it was it, it, it wasn't really that um, useful. It was like max height was like twenty one feet. So when I when I thought about that, I was like, wait, twenty one feet? We can get out of all these restrictions by going to Home Depot and getting two PVC poles that are like 10 foot a piece, right, and get maybe another one, and duct tape them together, and then put a, uh, a camera on the end of it, and then we're outside the regulations. So well, and that you re- didn't really seem to be useful. <laughs> well, exactly. And you raise an interesting point that a lot of times when you get down into what has actually been approved, you almost have to pause and say, well, can't you already do this with a stepladder or from a nearby <laughs> office building or uh, something in existence that are we really sure that this is specific to drones but it that's that's fascinating i i wonder how many people are now going to go buy the pvc pipe and see what else they can do and give a little bit of background under part 107 and you were mentioning how with Red Raptor, that was an existing 333. I mean, before August 29th, in order to have commercial operations, period, you had to have a 333 exemption from the FAA. And with the Part 107, you no longer have to have a specific 333 exemption, but you have to fly under certain conditions. And Tell us a little bit about what was granted as far as Red Raptor, because as you noted, it was a change from the 333 exemption application to basically waiving under Part 107. But walk us through that a little bit. Okay, so sure. Like uh, Primarily, the one regulation that's being waived is the night waiver. So flying under 107, you're restricted to flying in class golf airspace, which is very unregulated during daylight hours. Well, and what so, is what is Class G uh, airspace? I mean, okay, sure. Uh, there's different types of airspace in the United States, and the best way to kind of understand them is like I, this: when I used to flight instruct, this is how I would teach my students. So, 
cut a airspace that, that think of altitude. That's where, like, the, uh, you know, Delta American Airlines, they fly up real high, 18,000, mean sea level up to 60,000. Uh, 60, so it's real high. So class A airspace, altitude. And then you have B, class Bravo airspace. That's really, really busy, okay? And that's like uh, Atlanta International, for instance, Miami. So busy airports are class Bravo. And each of these airspace, by the way, they have certain requirements to them because there's certain types of operations that are happening there. So you kind of just need to know that for at least for manned aircraft. For unmanned, it's not so as uh, much important as far as the, the manned aircraft. And then there's Charlie airports. Those are a lot of the uh, smaller regional airports and stuff like uh, Nashville International, and you also have Palm Beach International, Fort Lauderdale International. Those are all Charlie airports. And you have Deltas, which are these small little uh, local towered kind of airports here and there. And then the last two types would be Echo and Golf. Uh, Echo, think of that as everywhere. Echo airspace, that's that's a fairly good amount of area in the United States. And then Golf, which is ground. That's airspace always close to the ground. And, and how so, high does that go? Oh, it depends on where you're going. So, for instance, Golf airspace is always at the ground unless you're directly in uh, airspace at like Bravo, Charlie, Delta, or Echo at the surface. Uh, it can go up to 700 feet, 1,200 feet, 14,000 feet, and additionally, once you go above and beyond um, uh, a class alpha airspace, uh, which is where all the, the um, major airlines fly, it actually turns back into, it turns into echo, so it's kind of interesting there, but golf is everything down below to the ground. Echo is kind of like, if you will, the grout uh, with tile, if, if that kind of makes any sense. It just kind of fills in all sorts of the areas uh, that are not, the golf airspace. So with this, uh, with the Part 107, you're flying in really the unregulated, I mean, it's, as you noted, it's, there's not a lot of control. You're not near an airport, but you could only fly during the day under Part 107 or twilight uh, hours. And what else were some of the restrictions that had y'all requested anything else in your 333 exemption? Uh, well, we, it was primarily just to fly at night. That, that's all it was. Uh, golf airspace at night is what we were granted for the entire United States for four years. Uh, so it was, it was fairly broad compared to what the 333 was, where you had to it, you had to say a certain distance from certain airports, uh, which was annoying because we had all these airports in the United States that were just golf and echo airports, which were really... Uh, especially the Gulf airports that were private, nobody really used these things. They were little dirt strips that some farmer might have uh, registered originally a long time ago. Or like out in uh, Oklahoma, there were there's a bunch of people out there that have been registering their grass strips, which are just their lawn mode, uh, to prevent the erection of the uh, wind generators. Um, because then the FAA wouldn't approve it because you have an airport right next by, right? So there, there were some tactics going on there. Anyways, the FAA got away from the looking at the airport issue, and they're now focusing on airspace wisely uh, because it gets, there's a, there was a lot of wasted time and effort put into keeping drones away from a lot of these little airports, which really weren't didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. However, that doesn't mean a drone operator can fly carelessly and recklessly right up into a uh, bunch of um, airplanes. They're not they're not allowed to fly in a careless, reckless manner, or fly in such a way as to interfere with airport traffic at one of these Gulf airports, or in such a way as to cause the air uh, the airplane to actually give way 
uh, to the drone. So they're, they, they need to fly in a responsible manner. It's just there was less red tape, uh, especially with getting waivers and stuff, uh, that has been completely removed now. So individuals can actually go out and make money with less headache. Well, and you mentioned the making money with less headache and what and the FAA's shift in focus. But when you look at Part 107, one of the things that starts to stand out was both one the the not you know not flying at night, but when you get into cargo, which it seemed that that was or that is one of the burgeoning areas growth areas is the delivery of goods but under part 107 you're not allowed to you have a very limited payload you can't transport uh, hazardous materials but there are also restrictions against carrying it across state lines i mean i kind of wondered whether the fa was thumbing their nose or Basically, did the Amazon and Walmart lobbyists not grease enough palms, or how did that happen? And this is the downside to uh, technology. Again, uh, I can't tell if we've lost Jonathan, but one of the big issues of late has been the delivery services as different companies have started testing. We saw the 7-Eleven Slurpees, the medical supplies that were being tested. So we're about to head into a commercial break in a little bit, and hopefully Jonathan will be able to join us right back. But it's, it's amazing to watch with some of the different issues how the FAA's rules have played out and whether different influences are at play. But you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. 
And welcome back. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. And today we are talking drones before we shift over to exploding phones. And with us is Jonathan, one of the uh, noted uh, drone and aviation attorneys that has been on this issue for a while. And we were congratulating him on his client receiving one of the first night waivers under Part 107 and briefly chatting about where some of the waivers are going to be required and where some of the new Part 107 rules contained, we'll call them oversights, gaps, or just downright regulations against drone deliveries. And Jonathan, welcome back. And what are your thoughts on how the Part 107 shaped out when it came to the drone deliveries? Oh, regarding drone deliveries, uh, the, uh, the the big issue there was that it was limited to visual line of sight, and you can't be crossing uh, the state borders. Uh, so that, that, that's problematic, uh, more so even with the visual line of sight requirement. So if an individual wanting to have a drone delivery business, uh, they can't go the 107 route because the waivers, which do allow for beyond visual and sight flying, specifically exclude the package delivery really of other people's uh, products. So that, that became very problematic, but I think there were some lobbyists somewhere that did a job getting, a good job getting the, uh, some provisions changed in the 333 exemptions. Uh, that the FAA passed back in July of uh, uh, the 15th, actually, just just recently, because the 333s were only allowed, they were visual line of sight only. Well, the amendment that that was put in there and passed by uh, Congress signed into law now allows 333s to be beyond visual line of sight in operation. So there's a possibility you could go that route for package delivery. Now, whether or not the FAA uses, I mean, what well, works with, uh, Amazon or Google to to use that. That's that's a whole other discussion because I've noticed with uh, some of these larger companies, they have some of the possibility of legal pieces of the puzzle there, but they don't always put them together in the right way. They could do things differently sometimes. Well, and how would you recommend? I mean, with the three thirty threes before we had Part One Hundred Seven, it as you said, it, Red Raptor submitted y'all submitted that three thirty three application back in March and. That's a speedy turnaround for a 333 review. I mean, some of them were, what, 18 months? Uh, yeah, they, they were getting pretty long there. They, they took quite a while. Uh, the fastest I had ever seen a 333 go through was 57 days. Uh, but that was right, uh, that was like May or April or something like that of 2015. Uh, so the amount of people getting in was decreasing, and the amount of people working on them was increasing. Uh, and then it it just kind of ballooned out and got out of hand, uh, where the FAA couldn't really keep hold of it. So thankfully, this 107 is kind of like a giant pressure relief valve on a lot of this. This uh, the, generally, probably say 80, 90 percent of the operations of the United States, they just want to fly in class golf airspace during the day below 400 feet. Before, everyone had to go and get a 333, which backlogged everything up big time. Now you can just go out and take a, 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 the, your 107 exam, your Part 107 exam, which is to get your remote pilot certificate. It costs 150 bucks. So I would say the whole entire drone industry, or I guess all industries that would, you choose to use drones, 
if you will, the tide rose for them. But I think there's a couple of industries that definitely are going to get a really big bang for the buck compared to others. Uh, one of them would be law enforcement. The reason I say law enforcement is that they were all having to go the public COA route, and if you've ever done the public COA route, it can be a pain and a half to try to go get a declaration letter and get that to the FAA where they approve it. But the um, COAs are supposed to be, and I'm saying this very tongue-in-cheek, they're supposed to be easier than the 333s. I mean, you're saying getting government uh, letters takes a while? The government's never slow. Uh, yeah, well, see, I, I, I had this one real bad situation recently where we were trying to get a declaration letter, and it was the equivalent of being like a fat kid playing dodgeball, and nobody wanted to take you on the team. So we had to get some government attorneys to try to sign off on some of the, uh, some of the statements that we were making that we are a government entity, we're doing certain types of operations, and nobody in their dog would sign it off. So it became very, very problematic. So instead of doing that, Law enforcement agencies, fire departments, they can choose to go and just get their uh, remote pilot certificates. makes their life a lot easier in that regard. So they stand to uh, benefit a lot. Also, real estate. So the well, let's go back. Guys, I was going to say, uh, let's go back to the law enforcement because one of the issues, can they, under Part 107, are there restrictions on what law enforcement can do with their operations? Uh, no, I mean, that, from a federal level, no. They don't have any specific restrictions on them compared to the next guy who's just a civilian. So the, I guess the, the, benefit, the benefit to them is that it's streamlined now, and they have a clear-cut way to do it. They can just go take a test. They can study for a test, 150 bucks, take the test, you're done. As opposed to before, where you had to go get a declaration letter, you had to file it off, then you had to get access to the COA portal, then you filed the COA uh, on the COA portal, which had a whole bunch of questions, and all of that all that nonsense is just skipped now. Now, that's very valuable if you want to do certain types of, like, out-of-the-ordinary operations as uh, law enforcement um, or, you know, fire department, any type of governmental entity. You might want to go back to that, but that, that's going to kind of determine upon the facts of the situation. But overall, uh, it's a big benefit to them. So even the rural uh, uh, law enforcement officers, firefighters, can now get into the game without having to figure out what in the world is deck letter and getting that signed off by an attorney somewhere. I mean, good luck to you. It, that, that was the hard part. How do you, how do you, the rural guys actually integrate? Now well, you have one of seven. Well, and with that, one thing, it's the getting the remote pilot certificate is you you have to study and you have to pass uh, an exam, but it's not a very complicated or cumbersome process. And the FAA has certainly placed a substantial amount of guidelines and guidance on the website. And I also want to direct people, too, to your website because you have a, a good overview of what people need to study, but there's no training component beyond that. And I would, by that, I mean, there's no hands-on, you have to have five hours of flight time or stick control. You're really just, once you get that certificate, you can buy a, you know, drone in a box off the shelf and good to go. Is that something we should be worried about, or does it raise any concerns? Uh, I, I think it definitely raises 
concerns because you can have individuals that can just get a 70 on the exam, barely pass, go get a drone, and then start flying. Uh, and there, there will be those individuals running around. The FAA will have to do some enforcement actions against them. Insurance will also have to, you know, if there's a, uh, some type of claim, they're going to just deny that guy. They're not going to give that guy another policy uh, later on. So, and then there's also the, the, the potential for insurance carriers to start requiring training at some point or at least a reduction in premiums in, in exchange for if you do take training at certain locations. I know that there are individuals going around training individuals, uh, but it's not required uh, for at least the smaller companies. Now, the larger companies are wisely thinking about, well, we want to get somebody in here who knows what they're doing to train our guys so that they are competent. So the large companies uh, don't really worry about this as much as the, you know, the guy with the Phantom operating outside of his, out, out of the back of his car, doing real estate photography. That's kind of what everyone's worried about. Well, and where I tend to make the recommendation, admittedly, with some of my uh, government entity and law enforcement clients, is consider outsourcing. That there is a lot of the. The aviation side is one thing, but the technology side is often overlooked. That understanding the, you do need to understand the weather conditions and okay, if we're, if this is an optional flight operation, it's a windy day, perhaps we don't need to fly today. But also understanding just how far your aircraft can get from the controller before you lose your communications links or and hopefully you've known to set it you know, return to home otherwise return to home may kick in and home may be in china but and that's because you are an aviation or an adjunct professor correct at emory riddle and how do y'all incorporate that into the discussions Oh, well, for, for that position, I just recently got picked that up, so I haven't started teaching yet. Uh, they just offered me that position, but I'll be teaching uh, coming up here, uh, UAS regulatory compliance. But there, there, you bring up an issue where um, there, there's, a, there's a need to know how to operate your aircraft. Uh, it's probably going to be on your head, and you need to know what are the, the, the max distances your aircraft can actually fly, what could actually interfere with your aircraft's uh, radio signal. Uh, so there, there's going to be a bunch of needs for that, and I would also ask, like, well, pre-flight planning, why in the world are you flying at the max uh, range of your aircraft? Because it uh, can. You know, well, I'm like, okay, great. Uh, you, I mean, you could also be stupid, too, and jump out in front of a moving vehicle, but I, I wisdom says you probably shouldn't do that, and so then when you have some type of claim, then then the insurance company is going to ask some questions, and the FAA and the inspectors, uh, you know, they're going to be asking some questions, like, well, why were you flying this uh, what, what looks to be beyond visual line of sight when you as a 107 operator are limited to only visual line of sight operations. Well, so, it, it, there are a lot of considerations, and I know you've got a hard stop today, and so I want to give you a chance share with everyone how they can find out more about your research and your resources that you've put together on your firm's website. Sure. Individuals that are interested in 107 waivers and, and 323 exemptions, uh, anything along the lines of that, can find information on my website, which is J-R-U-P-P. Uh, well, best way to put it, my last, J, my last name at law.com. So Juliet Romeo Uniform, Papa Papa Romeo, Echo Charlie Hotel, 
jtangolimaalphawhiskey.com. So it's jrupreclaw.com. That's how you can find me. Excellent. Well, you've been listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz with Jonathan Rupert. And Jonathan, what aircraft do you have next on your agenda to pick up? Uh, I would like to maybe pick up an Inspire uh, 1 with the Flare View. Uh, I really like those with the, the integrated gimbal and everything. Uh, I really like that. That's probably what I'd pick up. If I had an unlimited budget, I really like also the free flight systems, all the 6 or 8. Uh, those are I was going to cool say. Uh, well, um, and hopefully, uh, money always being the key. There's such a wide range. There are some neat toys. But thank you for joining us. Uh, you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. And when we come back from the commercial break, uh, Samsung Note 7's exploding. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz, on America's Web Radio. And before the break, we had been chatting with Jonathan Ruprecht on drones and the new Part 107 rules. But you can't talk about the FAA without their noting their groundbreaking announcement last week that... The Samsung Samsung Note 7, so Samsung's latest entry on the cellular phones, they're banned from being in your checked baggage. You And if you carry them with you on the plane, according to the FAA, you've got to have them powered down. Why? Because the batteries are exploding, or at least that are what that's what the reports would have you believe. So it raises an interesting question of how did this happen? How, after years of testing and development and design, does a cell phone's, the integral part, the battery of the phone, 
cause such significant issues that if you look at the pictures of some of the phones that have allegedly caught fire, they're they're not messing around. It's not just a little singe mark. It is pretty substantial damage. And what happens with that? Are the companies required to, they start doing voluntary recalls and patching software updates that attempt to address, but you've got to basically change course and change direction in the middle of your production. How do you get all the phones that had been uh, built and designed up until then, how do you roll them back? I mean, the recall was announced on September 2nd, and as of September 11th, Samsung had lost $22 billion of market value for two days that it the warnings got out there. I mean, $22 billion, your marquee flagship product is being recalled around the world. The FAA has essentially grounded all usage of it and carrying of it on the flight. So business travelers are left wondering, not to mention tourists, well, am I going to be the one who crashes the plane because of a fire? Is it going to cause an issue? What do I do? How do I get home? Or how do I travel with the device that is essential? I mean, Not everyone wants to carry a laptop around with them. Or if you're using the Samsung on the Android line, you don't have the iPhone. You don't have the Apple Watch synced up to it. Or you don't always have a backup with it. So with all of those questions, it raises the issue of, all right, what's, what's the response? And how do you then deal with that from a corporate level, from the company manufacturer level, as well as the individual. And so from the company level, Samsung has initiated voluntary recalls where they are bringing um, in all the different different software updates and uh, with that, it's just a temporary fix. The uh, With the temporary fix, it's a software update that limits your phone's battery to 60% charge. And with the 60% charge, how is that impacting other usage? I mean, you're constantly charging and charging and charging uh, the phone and it becomes a little bit more of an issue because that's not a that's not a permanent fix and within that the manufacturers are scrambling and unable to bring in the replacements for at least they're saying or initial reports are that the replacements won't be available until September 19th so we're at that point, almost three weeks into the the issue, and 
that's the first rollout of the fixes. That's not addressing the new phone. So Rich Mogul, who'll be joining us momentarily, Rich has worked in the security industry for more years and we're going to note on some level and with that he has worked for Gartner he has worked on both the product development the testing the software the systems and currently is with his has started his own company that provides analysis of these kinds of issues so rich apologies on my end uh, for the delay in getting you on the phone but welcome to the show and it's great to get the security and the software and the systems and the product insights into what is going on with samsung <laughs> you know it's uh it's a bad luck for one and possibly uh, an engineering and these kinds of things can happen. Uh, as anybody who went and bought one of those razor, or not the razor models, but the uh, um, what do they call them? Hoverboards, which uh, I think is a terrible name. If it doesn't look like it did in Back to the Future too, I don't think it should be. It's considered not a hoverboard. hoverboard. No, concur. Yeah. <laughs> Penalty flag. So on that uh, one. you know, it's just a manufacturing defect. It looks like uh, that occurred in a small percentage of the phones, but it, it's a bad one when things blow up. Well, yeah. I mean, that's putting it mildly. I'd like to think that when I purchase a product, uh, something such as the cell phone is, and if anyone is listening or watching the show from the online stream, uh, they have seen me. My cell phone is almost permanently attached to my hand. And to think that suddenly that's what's going to explode, I've got a problem. Yeah, and it doesn't. I mean, it won't blow your hand off. It might just light it on fire. Ah, well, in that case, you know, no, no worries. And <laughs> is this is this kind of issue? Assuming it is a an engineering issue, is Samsung the only one who has these kinds of problems, or are there a couple other manufacturers now scrambling and reassessing? So uh, there's actually very well known that lithium-ion batteries uh, are, by their nature, uh, well, explosive. Um, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done in order to keep those safe. Uh, for example, I had a portable battery pack from a decent manufacturer that, you know, I had to stop using because it was overheating and I was worried about risk. Um, I had some portable batteries back when I had my first Nintendo Wii, and those actually did uh, heat up and melt uh, the, the remote. So that's it, that's never a, what you want to have happen. Hmm? You you don't want the batteries to melt your remote. Uh, no. <laughs> um, so you know, batteries, battery technology is it's uh, you know a very difficult science. We're trying to wring more and more power out of all of these, and even if you get the basic science correct, certain kinds of manufacturing errors can cause the situation that Samsung has. Yeah, you know, and look, I actually don't like Samsung much as a company. Uh, that some of their practices, uh, they copy other manufacturers, all sorts of, you know, some of, a lot of, you know, kind of how they do business. I definitely don't appreciate. Uh, however, this is something that could happen to, you know, other manufacturers. So the question will come down to, you know, was this a 
liability-based quality control issue? Is it the kind of, you know, was there a level of negligence involved? I mean, you're the lawyer. You understand that a heck of a lot better than I do. Uh, or was it some kind of unanticipated, um, you know, kind of new weird sorts of uh, defect that got introduced in this small number of phones? Well, and what Either do way, you... we're in unprecedented territory because I've never heard of, you know, I mean, I flew multiple times last week and this week, and, you know, they were telling people to turn off their phones uh, and not charge them while they're on the aircraft. Well, and it raises a very good uh, concern of, we're in uncharted territory where it's one thing if you're telling someone, oh, don't bring your uh, faux hoverboard on the plane, but to tell someone, don't bring your cell phone onto the plane or power it down, there's not a lot of fixes for hardware. I mean, software, you download the patch, the update, and hope everyone is addressing it. But when it comes to hardware, that's an entire manufacturing and design issue. How do you... Oh, yeah. S- I mean, this is these are really hard to deal with. Uh, so, you know, at one level, they have already put out a software fix, which caps the battery capacity at 60%. So that is designed to keep the battery from getting to the levels where the overheating and, and explosion and fire could occur. Uh, this is not totally unprecedented. We've seen this with certain laptops and such in the past. It's just nothing that was sold to the scale, you know, of the leading Android manufacturer's, you know, brand new model uh, of phone. And, I mean, really, this is, you know, right off of, you know, many millions, if not billions of dollars, because they have to uh, recall all of those devices and, you know, determine which ones were affected and which weren't. We haven't seen a lot uh, exactly of, you know, the root cause analysis. So, like the Tanata airbags, for example, you know, they may have the ability to trace back based on model number through the manufacturing process if the issue was associated with just one manufacturing facility. Uh, however, there's the chance it could be a design flaw that, you know, could cause a situation that in all of the manufacturing facilities uh, could lead to this particular uh, flaw. Um, and, you know, we'll just have to keep waiting and seeing how, you know, as Samsung reacts. Uh, well, it- of course, like Tylenol, they may have to just recall, you know, every one of the phones just to assuage consumer fears. Because nobody wants to be told, no, no, don't worry. Yeah, I know that one blew up, but yours is fine. Well, exactly. I mean, and one of the things they had started working with is whether to turn it over to the U.S. government in the sense of have it become a mandatory uh, product recall. But in your work as an analyst and expert on all kinds of different hardware and software, I mean, you evaluated these issues for companies, $22 billion losses as of September 11th for the company, is that just the tip of the iceberg? If they have uh, to go back and start redesigning? Potentially. Yeah, and again, it potentially. Uh, the, um, you know, there's the direct recall cost, the direct product replacement cost, the changes in the manufacturing, and then the brand damage is kind of what a lot of this comes down to. And then there's their crisis communications, uh, how they handle it. Uh, I suspect long-term brand damage will be limited if they manage, you know, if they keep address, you know, going after this aggressively, which they are. They're not denying it. Uh, you know, the videos and everything are horrible, but you know, as we've seen time and time again, uh, people have very short memories and just kind of move on. 
And uh, the reality is, is that, you know, they are, there's a reason that they're the leading Android phones. I mean, I don't like Android phones myself, but if I was going to get one, it would probably be a Samsung or one of those Google Nexus phones, which I think they're about to shut down, just because the quality is better than most of the competition. So, so what you're you know, saying is Google may be reconsidering their cancellation of that phone. No, I, I doubt they are. I mean, <laughs> really, the, you know, Samsung will get through this. They're... You know, a massive brand. They're very diversified. They can absorb these financial losses due to their success. You know, it's kind of like Apple being fined, you know, however many billions by the EU. Even if they have to pay that, you know, it's kind of a drop in the bucket. Now, Samsung's not as financially strong as Apple, but they're in, you know, decent shape. It hurts. It's material. The stock takes a hit. But, as you know, somebody's dealt with crisis situations, everything from security breaches to, uh, you know, the other kinds of disasters. Well, I was going to say, and Rich, we're going to jump to a commercial break, and then I want to get your final thoughts before we have to go. But you're listening to America's Web Radio. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, You can rest assured, knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. This is americaswebradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. We are chatting Samsung Note 7s with security expert uh, Rich Mogul. And Rich, before we jump into the legal aspects with our next guest, final thoughts from the information security and hardware software side. Uh, Liz, you did break up there for a second. I was, could you repeat the question? Oh, of course. Final thoughts. I mean, what are some words of wisdom as <laughs> Samsung cell phone owners are panicking? Yeah, look, you just need to go ahead. Don't use them. Um, make sure you you know put the software update. You keep that battery capacity low. Uh, take your SIM card, swap it into another phone. Uh, definitely, you know, follow the recall process. These are there's just a way for you to know. Uh, now they are issuing safe phones uh, at this point, which don't have that. So go ahead, swap that out. I'm not going to tell you not to use your Samsung phone, but you you know th- these are serious. Uh, the these kind of battery issues 
when they come up are, you know, a huge liability and, and can definitely cause, you know, very, you know, serious concerns. I used to be a firefighter and a paramedic. This is not one you want to mess with. No, and for the listeners, find more information on Rich. Follow him on Twitter at R-M-O-G-U-L-L. And follow his company at S-E-C-U-R-O-S-I-S.com. Rich, thank you for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. And now that we know, okay, use your phone. That's... Okay, but be cautious about it. Go follow the download uh, software patch procedures and switch it out. But it raises the question of, okay, what about all the data I had on the phone? What about uh, liability? I have a damaged phone. I It interrupted my business use. And so when you go to the issues like this, you've got to go to the lawyers. And when you go to the lawyers... Darren Dickerson is joining us from Alston and Bird, and Darren has had a little bit of experience, and I'm saying that, again, not lightly. Uh, Darren is a known privacy and class action attorney. Darren, thank you for joining us and uh, sharing your thoughts on exploding phones. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. You know, unfortunately, I, I have a lot of experience, not only with privacy, but with exploding phones. Fortunately, not uh, personally. Oh, dear. But, you know, I've, I've actually handled uh, dozens of cases involving exploding phones or phones that have, have caught on fire. Uh, this is obviously a big issue with Samsung, particularly given the recall and the uh, publicity it has received. Uh, but Darren, what kinds of friends or clients do you have that their phones are exploding? Well, you know, I've, I, you know I've, I just spend a lot of telecommunications clients and phone manufacturers in particular, and it's just not uncommon for batteries, and particularly third-party batteries. So this, this Samsung issue is a little unique because it's the Samsung battery that is the problem. But in, the, in much of the early 2000s, there were significant issues with third-party batteries when we had phones that you would actually go and buy another battery when your battery died, uh, and, and those things were extraordinarily hazardous. Uh, and so I've been in a number of inspections of these batteries with experts trying to identify the root cause of the issues, and uh, it used to be a real big problem, uh, probably not to the extent of the Samsung issue, though. But now that we're here with Samsung, and as you mentioned, it's a Samsung battery. They can't just switch vendors as easily. What do we do? Where do we go from a consumer standpoint? So, you know, one of the major issues for Samsung here is the FAA uh, creating this rule that you can't take your Samsung phone on an airplane, which creates a significant issue not only from a reputational standpoint from Samsung, but when you think about liability and damages. So Samsung wants to recall the phones to replace the battery to fix the issue and give the phones back or allow consumers to purchase a different or to to, to buy a different phone. Um, But the issue here is that in the interim, before the fix uh, is implemented, consumers have these devices that they can't fully utilize, either as your previous guest said, don't charge them beyond 60% or you can't take it on a telephone. Interestingly, I was in Florida this past weekend with a friend 
uh, with a group of friends, and one of our friends has this very phone, uh, when we got word that he couldn't take it on the plane back home. And, and he was scrambling to try to figure out what he was going to do because he had to fly back to Atlanta on Sunday. I was going to say, it, I have a feeling it left many people stranded, not just you know the business travelers, but exactly, consumers, what do you do? Yeah. So, you know, when, when, there's, when there's an issue with a product, and whether it's a phone or a refrigerator or a, or a motor vehicle, the manufacturer will usually fix the problem and then give the phone back. And when they're sued, they say, well, you, didn't, you weren't harmed. We fixed the problem before it manifested. And there's a long body of case law uh, holding essentially that you have no claim against the manufacturer unless your product failed or it was substantially certain to fail. And if there was a fix implemented, then you haven't suffered any harm. I'll say, but is a reducing the battery capacity to 60%, that's not a fix, is it? That, no, that's exactly right. So it's not, it, it's not a trivial level of harm, but you're actually um, changing the way that the product functions. Uh, and you're hindering consumers' ability to use the product that they purchased. And so I'm surprised that we haven't already begun to see an onslaught of cases relating to this issue, but uh, I'm certain that they're on the way. I'll say, and for those listening in, you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz with Darren Dickerson. And uh, Darren is an attorney with Alston and Burden, while Halby Smith, my firm, is a fantastic firm. Uh, reach out to Darren, because uh, I am sure you would have no problems uh, addressing this. I mean, but... You are. You're going to see this almost onslaught of, don't take away attorneys' phones. We don't like that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so, you know, anytime you file a lawsuit, whether in state or federal court, there's an initial threshold that you have to surpass, and that's standing, whether you actually have a claim, whether you've suffered harm. Uh, and the, the loss of use is often one of the elements of harm that consumers uh, will allege. And in many instances, it's difficult to prove that you actually lost something. But here, it seems like, you know, based on you know the FAA issues and the others that we discussed, that there is some harm, uh, and so there's a risk to Samsung when these when these lawsuits finally hit. Now, in building on that, you mentioned the loss the loss of use and the harm, but with so let's suppose I'm your friend down in Florida. And I can't get my phone, first of all, on the plane, but I'm, I'm not able to use it. The delay of getting it up back up to Atlanta, I'm now without a cell phone and losing business because perhaps my business involves being constantly reachable or having the email correspondence or managing different day to day operations. It, it, is going to start to snowball into a very expensive case-by-case issue for Samsung, I'd imagine. Yeah, very quickly. I mean, all of the ancillary costs associated with uh, not being able to use your phone or the, even the loss in value of your phone, that's a lot. That, that's the place where a lot of these cases land is this issue of, I purchased a phone that I expected to do X. It doesn't do that, and so I wouldn't have paid as much for it had I known it had these problems. Uh, and so that issue will certainly be litigated. There, there may be, um, you know, a bright side of this for Samsung, if you can call it that, and that it, it might be difficult to certify a class when there are all of these individual issues relating to 
what type of business I have and how I use my particular phone and what harm I experience personally. Because as you know, Liz, uh, to certify a class action, the primary goal is to show that your claim is just like everyone else's claim. So uh, is that really a bright a bright sunshine uh, moment for Samsung or for the attorneys? Because if you can't certify a class, does that mean every individual will have a separate claim against Samsung and each claim requires a lawyer? Well, so that is exactly what it means. But the reality is that the vast majority of people will not find a lawyer and will not uh, pursue a claim in court. That is merely because they are not listening to the radio show and uh, do not have your contact information. Uh, <laughs> but it's so with the prior cell phone battery issues, why didn't we see? I mean, it seems like those were different because it was just don't use your phone. It wasn't almost an across the board power down. Yeah, well, I think there were a number of reasons why it wasn't a, as big of an issue. I think, one, you have seen on YouTube and on Facebook all the videos of cars catching on fire and people's clothing catching on fire because of these phones. And that type of social media wasn't as prominent, um, you know, when a lot of these other phones were having issues. I think, two, the FAA announcement is also a big deal and created more media buzz and attention. And then, you know, we talked about the fact that this is not a third-party battery, but an OEM, an original manufacturer uh, battery, that is having the problem. And then finally, th- this is the first time that I've seen um, a, one phone that sold this many units have a problem. Uh, and so, you know, I think all those factors together uh, have kind of aggregated to make this a big deal. Well, and it certainly is going to be fascinating to watch how it continues to unfold. And so, Darren, thanks for joining us today and sharing your thoughts. And you can find out more about Darren through his law firm, Alston and & Bird, and really going to see how both the fiery phones and the liability issues arise as more and more products uh, in social media impact it. But thank you to America's Web Radio for hosting the show. Thank you to my law firm, Halby Smith. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz. Catch Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz each Wednesday from 2 to 3 and podcasts available on America's Web Radio and iTunes, among others. And until next time, look forward to talking to you then. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.